Hill and welcome to Stories of Scotland, the tatties and butter of the Scottish history podcast world. I'm Annie. And I'm Jenny. And I'd I'd say we were more exciting than tatties and butter, Annie. We're like the the black pudding and herring of the Scottish history podcasting world. That sounds delicious, Jenny. The real question is, who's the black pudding and who's the herring? I think we'll let the listeners decide that one, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) But today we are heading south to the borders in our new series exploring the wonderful south of Scotland. It's brilliant because we're moving from the Highlands where we have the stereotypes of lawless Scots wildly living to their own rules down to the borders where we have the stereotypes of lawless Scots wildly living to their own rules. But this series is going to be fantastic, Jenny. We have planned some amazing episodes. We have the histories of witches, the lore of ghosts, some gorgeous natural environment episodes all about the beautiful borders, and also some shocking tales of rivalries and customs of border clans. It's going to be amazing. Just a quick thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Scotland Shop. Scotland Shop make beautiful tartan clothing with a story behind every product. And your tartan garments can be custom made to fit your body shape. While based in the borders, their tartans are available worldwide. Follow the link in the episode description and see their wide range of tailored tartan clothing and fabrics. There are over 500 clan tartans to choose from. 500! And you can make a virtual appointment for some personal service from the comfort of your own sofa. Your own sofa! Jenny, I think you'd look great in one of their tailored suits. I agree, Annie. I'll head over to Scotland Shop via the link in the episode description after the show. But for now, let's get back to the borders. And today we're going to be examining a case of a real witch trial. This is a very dark but important part of Scottish history. It's a sensitive topic to cover because we know that the people accused of witchcraft committed absolutely no crimes at all, and yet they faced terrible consequences because of the accusations. It's a bit of a paradox, really, because... The victim of witchcraft isn't the accuser, it's always the person accused and charged and possibly sentenced to death for witchcraft. However, these trials do give us an incredibly valuable insight into superstitions and beliefs in magic in the early modern period. Reporting on witchcraft feels a bit like an impossible task because we've got a lot of preconceptions and biases that need to be unpicked and that have been built into us just by all of the the strange modern culture and superstitions about witchcraft that we see in TV, in books, in all of the wizarding worlds, really. We're going to the early modern period, which is that little space of time between the medieval period and the industrial revolution. And wait, just quickly, so we all know sort of when the Industrial Revolution started, but when would you say the medieval period came to an end? Okay, so there's a lot of argument about this. (laughs) 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 Because historians don't like consensus. But they do like singing, apparently. (laughs) So the early modern period is seen as roughly beginning in the 1500s, and ending in the 1700s. All right, are you ready to get some serious hate mail from some historians who are like, it ended in 1604 (laughs) precisely. (laughs) But in the modern era, it's very easy to think of early modern witchcraft as being a dangerous superstition. However, just thinking of it like this can skew our view a little bit. And it's very difficult, but we need to try to put ourselves into a mindset where massive amounts of people genuinely feared supernatural powers. And it's so challenging because in the 21st century, imagining a world that isn't completely mundane 
is almost impossible. Ah, speak for yourself, Annie. I may have spent two and a half hours cleaning my house this morning, but I do have a slack line in my garden. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Well, I never thought that you'd have a clean house, Jenny. It's but... rare. It's very rare. Some kind of witchcraft has <laughs> overtaken me. <laughs> but by mundane, I mean that society has much less investment nowadays in miracles and curses. For example, in modern Scotland, we no longer have any laws against interfering with supernatural or spiritual forces that control the world around us. Because outside of religion, there's no evidence of any supernatural or spiritual forces in the world around us. Maybe there should be laws for these kind of things, because, I don't know, Annie, if you saw me on my slackline, you'd believe in a spiritual force that keeps me balanced. Ah, yes, the millennia-old spiritual power of using your core muscles to stay on the tightrope. <laughs> One day, you'll leave this podcast to join the circus. In pursuit of that sacred six-pack, Annie, always. But you are, of course, as always, right. Everything nowadays has an explanation. All the mysteries of the world are removed by a quick Google search. Is Google the worst thing to ever happen to magic? In all honesty, Jenny, I think we started losing these mysteries of the world long before Google. (laughs) (laughs) Just think of all the discoveries of bacteria or viruses and the medicines to fight these, which previously would have all fallen into the realm of magic charms. To be fair, a quick Google search will put a lot more mystery into my headache than not Google searching it. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back to early modern Scotland. We have a country where the vast majority of regular everyday people are illiterate and where King James VI has begun to kick off some witchcraft, sorcery and necromancy panics. This is part of a European trend of witch hunts, which focus on Christian doctrine interpreting and preaching that Satan is at the heart of all Maleficium. And though James's son Charles is a bit more cynical of witchcraft, this doesn't stop the ball rolling that was put in motion by James and just keeps rolling through all of these wee towns in Scotland, ensuring that lots of innocent people are killed for a crime that shouldn't exist. And if we come back to that idea of mundane, we often talk about the sort of the idea of a beaded curtain between the world of the fairies, witchcraft and supernatural and our world, the world of reality. But I guess that in the early modern period, the beaded curtain hadn't been invented yet to separate these worlds. So people accepted the possibilities of supernatural happenings in their world, caused by Satan granting powers to regular people, for a price, of course. It was believed that the powers of witchcraft could only be granted by the devil, which would condemn the soul of the witch. And it's easy to imagine witchcraft accusations being caused by neighbours getting into feuds and throwing a false witch claim into the pot of neighbourly discontent. But there's also the chance that many people making witchcraft claims considered it possible that the neighbours they had grudges against were more than just bad people who occasionally stole their eggs. They saw their enemies as doing things that could be considered evil, as though they were actually in agreement with the devil. Imagine being told by trusted authorities that witchcraft is a danger you need to look out for. And then seeing that your chicken hasn't laid any eggs, but your horrible neighbour, they have a black pudding and herring omelette on the go. Would you question whether the devil is at play here, Annie? Or is the hen at lay here? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not laying eggs. (laughs) I agree with you, Jenny. This omelette has to be devilish. It has to be. Stay away. Stay away from the black pudding and herring omelette. <laughs> Devil or not, that is evil. <laughs> the witch trial we are exploring today takes place in Eymouth, a small fishing port on the east coast, only a few miles north of the Scottish border with England. 
It's a small settlement scattered around a sandy beach, which is flanked by towering cliffs on either side. It's quite the picturesque place for a witch hunt. But I'm not sure Elizabeth Bathgate cared so much about the scenery when in the winter of 1633, she is accused of witchcraft. The witch hunts in Scotland lasted loosely from the mid-1500s to 1700. So Elizabeth Bathgate is right in the middle of this century and a half where a very real fear of witchcraft and devil influence was at its height. During this time, there were five main witchcraft panics and our Elizabeth's accusation is coming at the tail end of one of these. But between these big public panics, which saw booms in witch accusations and trials, people were still being persecuted for witchcraft, right? But just at a lesser rate than during the booms? Yes, the booms tended to be created when people are accused of witchcraft and sorcery and then they're arrested, held and tortured. During this torture, they'd be forced to give up the names and accomplices or others they knew to be involved in witchcraft. And out of desperation, they'd just be naming people. And of course, they weren't actually in secret packs with the devil. But under awful conditions and torture, people would give names just to make it end. And these names would lead to more torture and more names and so on meaning there was an increase of people being accused of, tried for, and executed for witchcraft. So these are the panics. It's like if you've got a little snowball and you just keep rolling it in snow and it gets bigger and bigger, but instead of snow, you've got witchcraft accusations and trials and executions. It's horrendous. Yeah, that's a pretty terrible looking ball. It's a horrendous thing to imagine. So with estimates, all in all, between three and 4,000 people were accused of witchcraft in Scotland during this period. And of these, roughly 1,000 were executed, though this number is not precise. The remainder would have either been acquitted or they escaped or some poor souls died in prison awaiting trial. Okay, so that's like a two-thirds-ish survival chance if you're accused. I mean, it's not Squid Game stats, but it's not great. Well, well, it's not Squid Game stats, no, but it's also not fictional, Jenny. Mm. These were real people (laughs) with very real lives, and even if they survived, their lives were often completely destroyed by the accusation. However, this is probably a good time to highlight that a lot of the figures don't really add up when it comes to witchcraft trials. Everyone knows the devil is terrible with numbers. The devil is in the details, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) So we're using data held in the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft database, and out of over 3,200 named cases, we only know the outcomes of about 10% of the trials. And out of this little sample section we've got, the verdicts are actually suggesting the opposite of what all of the educated guesses about witchcraft trials are telling us. So out of the sample, about 67% of witchcraft accusations led to an execution. Wow. The archives of witch trials are not complete and many histories and endings for these people accused of witchcraft are going to be forever unknown. So bear in mind that though we use statistics throughout this episode, they are all estimations. You can check our sources in the references, but we are dealing with incomplete primary sources Mm. and just kind of doing our best. And for a little bit of context of what it would be like to be accused of witchcraft in the early modern period, it's an ordeal in itself. And being put in jail meant that people couldn't work or earn money whilst they were awaiting trial. In fact, being in the jail cost them money as they needed to pay for their cell and upkeep and trial expenses. Wait, what? They had to pay for their own prison cell? If, what happened if they couldn't pay? Was it turned into an Airbnb? 
No, of course, <laughs> of course not. They'd have their assets seized to pay for their expenses, but it's only really low-level officials or jailers who would benefit from this money. Witchcraft trials are really expensive. And for the person accused of witchcraft, they not only face financial ruin, but also the ruin of their reputation. Mm, no one wanting to buy that cursed cheese. The secret's in the sorcery. Is that a pun? It's an alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> the magic's in the milking. <laughs> the curse is in the curdling. <laughs> anyway, Jenny, the cheese was never cursed, and that's the whole point. Many people would escape execution only to find their lives crumbling in ruination, and sadly, People died by suicide as a direct consequence of a witchcraft accusation. The ripples of the witchcraft trials of the 16th and 17th century were far-reaching and destructive. So let's meet Elizabeth Bathgate from Eymouth in the winter of 1633. She's estimated to be in her mid to late 50s, and is married to a maltman named Alexander Pay, who also worked as a servant. A uh, maltman is a brewer, which is actually a great side hustle for Eymouth in the mid-1600s, because it's a well-known smuggler's cove. So this means that Elizabeth and Alexander are likely to be quite average earners. They are by no means part of the ruling class, but they're not in poverty. They're middling we know that they had extra cash, as it's mentioned in the trial that Alexander is known to lend money to his neighbours. Altogether, there are 18 charges of witchcraft brought against Elizabeth Bathgate. Oof, 18 charges. That's a lot of spooky antics. Alleged spooky antics, Jenny. <laughs> the charges are wide-ranging and cover a long period of time. With older women who were being accused of witchcraft, we sometimes see a reputation for strange behaviour forming slowly over many years, and patterns of suspicious activity being identified by the community. Now, in previous eras, this could have just been seen as eccentricities of a misunderstood person, but in the midst of a witch hunt, this is perceived as a possibility that the woman is somehow under the influence of the devil. Elizabeth's reputation for oddity supposedly stretched back for 32 years. So this is a long time for accusations to accumulate. That's an oddity for every 1.777777 years. But uh, who's counting? Her neighbours. Her neighbours are counting. Oh, hmm, yeah. <laughs> But let's have a look at some of these accusations, shall we? Yes. As I was sorting through all 18 of them, I saw a few patterns emerge, or more categories of accusations. One of the major categories was that of Elizabeth deliberately causing animal injury and death. On two occasions, a woman named Margaret Holm went to Alexander Pay, Elizabeth's husband, to ask for a loan to buy a horse and then later a cow. Both times, Elizabeth was incensed and forbade her husband from lending Margaret the money. On the first occasion, he complied and he didn't hand over any money. But this didn't quell Elizabeth's rage. She went and found the horse in question and stated, It should never do any good. And soon after, the horse began sweating and it didn't stop sweating until the poor horse sweat to death. It's so sad. One of the things I find quite difficult to read in these trials is quite the um, detailed descriptions of the deaths of animals. It's, oh, it's horrible reading. Just wait until you hear about the cow. Oh, no, Jenny, no. Yeah, so for some reason the horse melting didn't stop Margaret asking Alexander once more for a loan to buy a cow. This time, despite his wife's anger, Alexander agreed and loaned the money. Furious, 
Elizabeth bewitched the cow, causing it to waste to death. And on the night of the animal's death, Margaret claims to have seen someone dancing on the rigging of the buyer poor Bessie was in. Another horse was driven mad by Elizabeth for the same reasons. Her husband's generosity was not sitting well with her. So for listeners at home, the, we don't know whether the cow was named Bessie, but Jenny became quite attached to the cow and so named it Bessie in our notes <laughs> and it's made it into the episode. But we see that Elizabeth isn't just being accused of harming any old animals. She's being accused of harming the animals that are important to the people who have grudges with her. And these people aren't highlighting the horrible deaths of the animals because they are concerned about their well-being. They're more concerned about the economic value of their livestock. Horses and cows are expensive to buy and provide a vital source of food and income. And we'll start to see this more and more as we go through Elizabeth Bathgate's trial. That we're not actually seeing the work of the devil. We're just seeing people in poverty and misfortune. We're getting a window into the everyday troubles of the early 1600s Imeth and the pressures on people in an unstable political and economic climate. I think old Alexander was probably quite generous with his loan money and maybe they'd been burnt a few times by people not paying back on time or at all. And so I can see why Elizabeth gets angry when he might lend to certain possibly known unreliable people because they might never see the money again. She's just sick of their good fortune being taken advantage of by some Toons folk. Well, the problem with money lending is it's really about power. The lender always has power over the debtor. So perhaps her neighbours are seeing the witchcraft accusations as a means of highlighting the moral deficit of Elizabeth, that she's not being more charitable and generous with her wealth. And then perhaps her neighbours are just being very suspicious that the money that they've borrowed from Alexander and Elizabeth has always turned to bad money, into dad livestock. Perhaps they genuinely believed this money to be cursed. Or perhaps they were just buying the cheapest animal. There's a reason that perspiring horse is half price, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and never buy the sweaty pony. <laughs> Life license. We're putting them on the next stickers. <laughs> <laughs> The next category of accusations against Elizabeth is not that of causing animal sickness, but human sickness. A fellow named William Donaldson called Elizabeth a witch to her face, and then he turned and ran away from her. Now Elizabeth was having none of this, and she chased after him. But he was able to outrun her, and as he ran away, she yelled, Well sir, the devil be in your feet! And no sooner had the word reached him, he was rendered completely unable to walk. Okay, so I find this really intriguing because just 20 years earlier, a court clerk had published the fascinating manuscript, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. And this trial, which resulted in the brutal hanging of eight women and two men, was all started by one woman cursing a peddler who was walking past her. She was begging and the peddler refused to give her anything and so she cursed him and he lost the use of his feet. Modern readings of the trial suggest that perhaps just a heated argument could have caused this man to have a stroke. However, because of the coincidental timing after the curse, this incident made both parties absolutely certain that the woman was a witch. She felt tremendous guilt and did plead guilty to witchcraft. Wow, that doesn't sound too wonderful to me. <laughs> no, it's really not a wonderful discovery of witches. <laughs> um, I think it's an older meaning of the word wonderful when it's, it's quite literally filling people with wonder. But not good wonder, evil witchy wonder. <laughs> yes, still not convinced of the titling. 
<laughs> no, me neither. But we can see the patterns where accusations of witchcraft are mimicking each other, mimicking other trials, and sometimes coming straight out of the published texts of the time about witchcraft. And though I'm not saying that everyday folks would be worrying themselves over books like The Wonderful Discovery of Witches, I think that warnings from these books are trickling all around the country because they're being preached about in the zealous Presbyterian early modern church. Elizabeth was also accused of causing the illness of both John Gray's wee bairn and a man named Steve Allen, plus also all the death of his cattle as well. But most curious of this category is a curse that she is said to have hurled at George Sprott. Go home, and work for work what you can, your teeth shall overgang your hands, and ye shall never get your Sunday's meat to the fore. When I first read this, I genuinely thought she was cursing his Sunday roast dinner. (laughs) (laughs) May your gravy always be mildly lumpy and lukewarm and your roast tatties never as crispy as you'd like them. No, 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 this isn't the direction we're going in. Um, Elizabeth is actually cursing him to live an impoverished life, essentially saying that no matter how hard he works, he will never earn enough for meat to eat. Ah, okay, this makes sense because after the curse, he fell into extreme poverty. I quote, He never won his meat despite his work, though he worked so diligently night and day. I mean, it doesn't really make sense because she's not a witch. Her curse can't work. You keep saying that, Annie, but where's the proof? However, we know George Sprott was already struggling to earn a living. So essentially, Elizabeth is cursing him to the same existence as he currently had. It doesn't take magic to know that in the early 1600s, it's going to be exceptionally difficult for someone in financial hardship to have any kind of upward social mobility. Hmm. Well, next up on the She's a Witch bingo card is that Elizabeth was not only accused of meeting with other witches, but of conversing with the devil himself. At one solemn meeting, witches and the devil both in attendance, Elizabeth ordered the witches to burn down Achterlone's barn. This was the husband of Margaret Holm, the lady who had twice asked to borrow money from Alexander. When the witches refused this order, Elizabeth went down to the barn and set it alight herself, smooring the cattle in it. Smooring? Yeah, this was a word used in the, the accusation at the trial, and I had to look it up, and it's pretty grim. Basically just means that the cows were cursed to a fairly grisly death. Poor cows. Yeah, I've got another ye olde word for you as well. Elizabeth was seen doing conjurations whilst running withershins around the mill of Eymouth. I know withershins. It means against the sun or anti-clockwise. So anti-clockwise was seen as the opposite of good. So it's bad luck. Um, You can also say it's withershins if a plant is growing away from the sunlight. (gasps) A satanic succulent. to put this into the context that moving in a circular motion in a mill would normally just be relating to the activities of using a mill. Mm. But because we have these which fears and panic which are created and perpetuated by people in positions of power, we now have poor Elizabeth acting deviantly and suspiciously witchy. Ah. But what actually happened to the mill after Elizabeth was apparently seen behaving strangely, was quite shocking. Yeah, because the mill burned down, and guess who got the blame? Old Withershins Elizabeth. Yep. But she wasn't doing all this of her own evil accord. 
because she was in cahoots with the devil himself. He had apparently given her an enchanted horseshoe that she placed within her front door, and as long as it lay in there, her business would always prosper. Two men also claimed that they saw her in the dead of night in the back garden, with nothing but bare legs and her best jacket on, conversing over the fence with old Withershin Satan himself. He was wearing more than just a jacket though, but all of his clothes were green. Okay, we have a couple of things to unpick here. Essentially, a couple of her neighbours were just judging Elizabeth for being out in her garden waving just a coat. And I think this is completely unfair because it was bin day today and I heard the bin lorry coming up my street and I ran out in my <laughs> robe just to, to make sure my bin was going to be taken. Um, and did they yell witch at you as they drove by? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they perhaps thought it, but thankfully, because of mm. modern Scottish laws, I can't be tried <laughs> for this crime. <laughs> but Elizabeth is living in rural Eymouth. It's not like the whole neighbourhood is going to be seeing her. And just to add to the thought that these men were just voyeuristically gazing at this woman in her garden, one of them was quoted as saying, God save us. What does this woman do here at this time of night? She exists in her garden. <laughs> All that Elizabeth is doing is failing to meet their standards of what a woman should be doing at night time. Because in any other century, she is just a woman in her garden. Yeah, but they also said that she was meeting with the devil who was dressed in green. Controversial opinion here, Jenny. But it was probably just a bush. <gasps> it's Belzebush! <laughs> <laughs> Lucifer! The conifer! <laughs> the satanic organic giant turnip. Alright, that one wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these are the best puns ever. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're not. I'm so sorry, listeners. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So the devil is portrayed waving green in other Scottish witch trials as well. In some cases, the devil wears green because green is seen as an omen of ill luck. However, we think that the devil is waving green to connect this figure to ideas of Celtic fairy lore, which we've managed to find some academic writing about, not too much, but some. We have to remember that when we're connecting the devil to fairies, we are not thinking about happy fairies like in Peter Pan, because in times of witch trials, fairies are essentially seen as demons. Mm. There are even a few cases of the devil appearing in a female form wearing green. The devil wears green Prada. <laughs> and he looks great in it. <laughs> I find it interesting to look at the mention of green cloth in other witch trials too. There's a really curious example of a woman accused of witchcraft in Aberdeen who had cast a complex spell on a man by knotting her power into pieces of green thread and wrapping it round his body. The green thread drawing on supernatural powers. Now, this leans into similarities we see from curing spells for healing from this early modern period, where the healer would take magic from a garland of green honeysuckle that would be passed over the body that they were trying to cure. So green plants become green threads, both apparently summoning a power that is beyond human abilities, are connected with the devil himself. Mm. Sorry, I took us off the path a wee bit, but let's get back to the trial of Elizabeth Bathgate, because we find that she wasn't alone in being accused in Eymouth. Others who were accused of witchcraft themselves also named Elizabeth as a fellow witch. Elspeth Wilson, Margaret Belaine, and a notorious warlock named William Mairns 
claimed to have been at meetings with both Elizabeth and the devil. This fits into patterns from across Scotland of people being accused of witchcraft, with about 85% of accusations being against women. But of all the numerous accusations against Elizabeth that we've just run through, none are as heinous as those to come. For as terrible as causing illness to humans and animals is, as bad as conversing with the devil himself is, murder is worse. Things are really not looking great for Elizabeth. It was said that one year, during the herring drave, which is the time of the annual herring show, so a very busy time for fishermen, Elizabeth killed David Hind as he watched his boat on the sandy bay of Eymouth. She was also accused of transporting herself and other witches inside George Haldy's ship and sinking it with several of the crew members on board, causing all of their deaths. Okay, well, let's remember the ship because it's going to come up later in the trial. Oh, it's it's a dreadful accusation. They're saying that she's taken power from the devil and used it to sink these ships and kill these innocent people. Well, Annie, as bad as these two accusations of murder are, there is one worse still. George Sprott was a local to Eymouth. He was a Webster, or as we would call it, a weaver, and he borrowed an item of clothing from Elizabeth. But he was one of those folk, you know, the, the type of hoodie hoarder. And he kept this item of clothing much longer than Elizabeth expected him to. I don't think he's really a hoodie hoarder, Jenny. I think they just mean it's a piece of cloth. Yeah, I read some accounts where it was cloth and somewhere it was clothing. And then I made my own account, Annie, where it was a hoodie. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever it was... Eventually, Elizabeth got sick of waiting for her clothes or cloth to be returned, and she stormed down to George's house where he and his wife, Agnes Bunkle, were looking after their young bairn. <laughs> Bunkle? Oh, it's such a weird name. Elizabeth burst in and demanded her favourite hoodie to be returned. It was new and still soft and fluffy on the inside. And upon leaving, with her hoodie or cloth, whichever version you want to believe, in hand, she promised to do George an L-turn and swept out. I'm just going to add for listeners that I do believe it to be a piece of cloth. <laughs> but if you prefer to join Jenny on her hoodie train, I don't blame you. <laughs> Choo-choo, people. Get on board. We've got hoodies. <laughs> <laughs> but true to her word... Elizabeth returned one morning and nipped the young bairn in the leg till it wailed. And from the time of this nip, the child began to dwindle and grow weak. Dreadfully worried by this, Agnes Bunkle, the mother of the child, went to Elizabeth's house. And while she was there, Elizabeth gave her an egg. And so Agnes took this egg back home and she fed it to her wee bairn. But soon... A lump began to form on the very same spot where Elizabeth had nipped the child. And this lump grew and grew until it was the size of a goose egg. Now, I didn't know how big a goose egg was, but I googled it and they are considerably bigger than chicken eggs. So this lump was massive. And from this lump, a rotten egg-like substance oozed. And unfortunately, the wee bairn passed away and it was believed that the nip and the enchanted egg had caused the death. I mean, this is an absolute tragedy for the family, and you could see why they were looking for someone to blame for it in, in their grief. I did read an interesting thesis that proposed Elizabeth was being punished for cursing and pinching this child, because Elizabeth was failing society's expectations of women as nurturers. We all know some people who just don't really like being around babies, kind of holding them at arm's length, you know? Um, but for whatever reason, Elizabeth is being punished for not being graciously maternal towards Agnes Bunkle's baby. And that's how you say Bunkle. 
I, I've been really struggling with the word bungle. <laughs> <laughs> but with all these accusations building up, things are looking pretty dreadful for Elizabeth Bathgate. As far as witchcraft accusations go, we've got the whole book here. Property damage, sorcery, cursing, witch gatherings, horseshoes, discussions with the devil, animal and human illness, causing animal and human death, and worst of all, in the court of Jenny, because she has not stopped going on about this accusation, egg magic. Egg magic! <laughs> egg magic! <laughs> Just a quick thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Scotland Shop. Scotland Shop make beautiful tartan clothing with a story behind every product. And your tartan garments can be custom made to fit your body shape. While based in the borders, their tartans are available worldwide. Follow the link in the episode description and see their wide range of tailored tartan clothing and fabrics. There are over 500 clan tartans to choose from. 500! And you can make a virtual appointment for some personal service from the comfort of your own sofa. Your own sofa! Jenny, I think you'd look great in one of their tailored suits. I agree, Annie. I'll head over to Scotland Shop via the link in the episode description after the show. But for now, let's get back to the borders. The 18 accusations are peppered with individuals from the community, each with an allegation against her. It seems that Elizabeth had rubbed many of her community up the wrong way. They even wrote a song about her, and it may have stayed as a catchy little ditty about a disliked woman. But these resentful neighbours were able to take their grudge to a whole new level with the help of the church. I've actually found a wee piece of folk doggerel about this case, and I think it might come from the song. <gasps> In this wee poem, they mention Elizabeth as Betty and her husband as Sandy. Do you want to read it as a poem or sing it as a song, whichever you prefer? Oh, Annie, I didn't know you found it. This is great. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it as a poem because I, I don't want to subject our listeners to me singing. <laughs> Sandy Pay the Motman is drinking with a sotman and his wife, Betty Bathgate, is in the mill without a mate. And round she runs with her shins, with her shins. She's sunken Geordie Holdy's ship and drowned all his men and their equip and with her devilish squad has made Tom Burgon's nag run mad. She's taken Peter Trumbull's beer and killed the cow, oh Robin Weir. Well done, Jenny. Thank you. I I enjoy how much the song focuses on the cow. <laughs> and also the beer. There's like a fair yeah. few more deaths in that, but that beer. Can't forget about that beer. <laughs> <laughs> so in the early modern period, the moral beliefs of people were really being governed by the zealous Presbyterian Kirk. Witchcraft is perceived as treason against both the king and God. This is why there were such brutal sentences in witchcraft trials, because these are seen as crimes against the highest powers of the nation. It's thought that the powers of witchcraft could only be granted through a pact with the devil which is why in so many witchcraft trials we see accusations relating to the devil popping up. And so, when multiple people are accusing someone of this evil, we see the church at the centre of the evidence gathering and case building against the accused. George Holm was the minister in nearby Aiton, and once the accusation was lodged, he threw himself into the investigation becoming the driving force behind bringing the case to trial. But the church themselves couldn't quite go around killing women whenever they saw fit. Or at least not directly. You see, the church did have its own courts. The lowest of these courts is called the Kirk Sessions, 
and it's made up of the minister and elders of the congregation. It's effectively a parish committee functioning as a small local court. Often these court sessions utilised the fear of witchcraft to punish people that they perceived as lacking in piety. If we have a particularly pious congregation, this can mean punishing people who simply don't meet their very precise moral standards. Now, bear in mind that Kirk sessions have no criminal jurisdiction, so they can't execute a person accused of witchcraft. They would need to pass this on to a higher court, and they've got a few different options here. The early modern justice system in Scotland is really quite complex and a bit mm, mishmash. <laughs> People could be tried in a variety of different courts, some local courts, some travelling courts and some central courts, such as the Court of Justiciary. It was a roulette because in the higher courts, like the Court of Justiciary, they were being run by professional lawyers and it was far less likely that you were going to receive a verdict that you were guilty of witchcraft. Ah yes, the old game of Scottish witch roulette. Spin the loom wheel wither shins and see in what court your devilish antics fall. Your alleged devilish antics, <laughs> thank you very much. My client has not been proven guilty of any devilish antics whatsoever. <laughs> So, where did our Lizzie's alleged devilish antics fall? Unfortunately, her case is beginning through the Kirk Sessions. No! The Scottish Witch Roulette is a cruel game. However, remember the Kirk Sessions need to pass this case on to someone to prosecute her. Mm -hmm. So, her case was moved to the High Court of Justiciary. In Edinburgh. And this is because her husband paid for her legal representation. Yay! Yay! Yay, Yay for money <laughs> buying justice. <laughs> um, but this was great news for Elizabeth, as this court had much lower rates of conviction and execution. Again, from this small sample of known outcomes, the High Court of Justiciary executed 55% of women on trial for witchcraft. Now, this is compared to a huge 91% in the local courts. If you're being accused, you know which court you want to go to. Yeah, that's a massive difference. I mean, 55% is still really high, but the local courts are horrifically ruthless. Yes, well, it's why an impartial jury is so important. And it's almost the exact opposite situation for the local courts, because instead of an impartial jury, you have all the people who made the accusation against you, and they're able to heavily influence the trial with all their petty grudges and bias. Mm. So for Elizabeth, moving her case to a higher court is a potentially life-saving move. Her trial was removed from the community that was trying to kill her and put into a court where there's going to be less prejudice against her. Clearly many people in Eymouth found her an argumentative nuisance to say the least. And with the church and powerful locals on their side, her odds looked pretty grim in the local court. But, as we've said, Elizabeth and her husband Alexander were fairly well off in comparison to many of their peers, and this meant that they could hire a proper legal counsel. This is definitely why the trial got moved in the first place. The lawyers knew how the courts worked. Yay for basic legal knowledge. But, I mean, even here there's still a 55% chance that it's not going to go Elizabeth's way. Yes, so Elizabeth's lawyers have a tough job and they put together a lengthy and detailed defence. And some of their logic is simply outstanding. If we remember one of the accusations about the sinking of George Holdy's ship, the defence claimed that these allegations of ship sinking were not detailed enough to make any sense whatsoever. 
and Elizabeth had neither stirred up a storm nor been seen as flying like crows, ravens, or other fowls about the ship as is with witches. So this is an excellent defence, really underpinning the psyche of the witchcraft trial. They are saying, actually, our client was not seen transforming into a crow or any other ominous bird. And there's no witnesses to testify that she was flying round George's ship and cursing it in any kind of bird form. So the defence isn't saying that this isn't possible. They're not saying that witches' sinking ships were not a real threat in early modern Scotland. No, the defence are simply highlighting that there's not enough evidence that Elizabeth was involved in such a plot, that she hadn't been seen transforming into a bird and cursing the ship or stirring up a storm. There simply wasn't any hard evidence that she had done these things. And likewise, with the accusation of her running Widdershins in the mill, her defence argued that she was simply grinding her malt and minding her own business. They never denied that these allegations were things that could happen in their world. They simply denied that Elizabeth had anything to do with them. Elizabeth's imprisonment and trial dragged on for six long months. With the knowledge that this could be a death sentence, it would have been torture for her. Eventually, the High Court decided that there was insufficient evidence to gain a conviction against Elizabeth Bathgate. And she was acquitted on all 18 counts. Yeah, she's innocent! Woo! I mean, yeah, of, of course she's innocent. But the fact that she was found to be innocent by a 17th century court of law with 18 accusations, including multiple murders and egg magic, is amazing. Yes, I mean, good lawyers were definitely the key here, and good lawyers cost money, so yay that she has enough money for a lawyer. Yay for the commodification of justice. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's it's really ironic that the majority of the accusations were to do with money lending and the financial status of Alexander and Elizabeth in contrast to their neighbours, and that this wealth disparity played a large part in her accusations. But ultimately, it was this very wealth that saved her. For Elizabeth, despite a long and difficult trial, this is the best outcome from her witchcraft accusation that she could hope for. The accusation itself would have cost her money and hardship, as spending time in a 17th century jail is no one's idea of a mindfulness retreat. However, when we look at Imeth in the panic of the witch hunts, we know that no one was delivered a fair trial, because this, this wasn't a crime. Witch trials executed innocent people, ruined lives, and tore apart communities. Elizabeth's middling wealth and perseverance through a broken system is what saved her. But not all people were able to afford the legal help to increase their chances of surviving an accusation of witchcraft. What we see in witch trials are communities who are to some extent fearing or hateful of deviant characteristics. Sometimes we're also just getting the petty grievances between neighbours and communities who want to punish or exterminate an outsider. In the case of Elizabeth, we see people looking for someone to blame for their own misfortunes, trauma and poverty. Early modern Scotland was led to believe that some non-conforming behaviour was valid evidence of influence from the devil. When in any other time period, strange behaviour would just earn you the name good old eccentric Betty. <laughs> I find the witch trials intriguing because to try to understand them, we need to look through a completely different perspective and reality to what we know. There's so much in these trials that it's very difficult to relate to nowadays. This complexity makes looking at witch trials challenging, but it also shows us a glimpse into the past as it was, which is a complete overgrown mess 
an absolute bin fire of chaos. Sounds like my kind of time. (laughs) Well, I bet you in a few hundred years, people will look back on the 21st century (laughs) as a bin fire of chaos also. (laughs) I find it hard to represent the beliefs of the time. Um, It's something I've struggled with in all of our witchcraft episodes. On one hand, I do think there was a great many people terrified of the power of witchcraft and who held on to the belief with a kind of iron claw and who believed with every fibre of their body that witchcraft was a threat to them and their families. On the other hand, I see a system designed to punish people, mostly women, with allegations that can only be false. And this was a system that was easily exploited and manipulated to execute people who had just been trying to grind their malt and eat their eggs. But there's no easy conclusion to draw from this, only that the real evil was the witch trials themselves. And I think the other conclusion we can draw is that you should always put on at least pyjama bottoms when taking the bins out. Thank you all... (laughs) I don't need that kind of judgement, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to tell us who you think is the herring and who is the black pudding in our wonderful podcasting pair, then please, why not leave it in a review for the show? I want to be the black pudding. I don't know why. You want, I that, no, because that's because no one wants to be the herring. Who <laughs> <laughs> wants to be? You know, I could ride with herring. I could, I could rock up a herring look. I'm, I'm in the market for a Halloween costume right now. <laughs> I could go as a herring. <laughs> a great herring Jenny but we have had some really touching reviews recently so thank you all so much for them but if you've not left us a review yet I'm intrigued to have my personality rendered into either black pudding or herring (laughs) reviews really help us as they allow more people to find the show we're almost at 500 reviews across all countries So I'd really like to get there. We only need 20 more reviews. And I I just like nice, nice numbers, you know, with the big zeros. That that makes me feel important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other ways you can support us as we share stories of Scotland around the world. For example, following us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. And soon LinkedIn. (laughs) All of the, all of the media. If you'd like to support us while also getting access to lots of extra Scottish content, then you can head over to our Patreon. For the price of a few herring a month, you can listen to the weird and wonderful research holes that we fall into that don't quite fit into episodes. It's been really great seeing everyone's shiny sticker packs arrive. We got a message from a listener in Australia who said they literally did a happy dance when they opened their letter. Oh, so it's been that lovely. Was really nice. I really enjoyed writing the letters as well. We had fun doing that. Lots of cake and coffee <laughs> and just writing lots of letters to our patrons. It's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. We do have some shiny stickers left, but not too many. So if you would like your very own shiny stickers then head over to Patreon now before they are all gone. If you're a Patreon and you've not received shiny stickers, check to see if you've sent us your address in a private message. All right, we probably have enough stickers to last us to Christmas or so, so get subscribing. Um, And also, welcome to our new patrons. You guys are fantastic. We have Carrie-Anne, Laura, Jodie, Peter, Brian and Jennifer. I like to imagine you all in a magical coven on a beach, um, maybe not sinking a ship, maybe maybe just convening with supernatural forces somehow. All right, that's a very witchy, suspicious thing to say, Annie. A few more of them <laughs> and I'm going to be whipping up the Kirk session soon. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I am off to carve some blessed turnips for Halloween now. So until the next episode... Slanjava.
but your horrible neighbour, they've got a haggis and herring omelette on the go. Would you question? It was black pudding oh, in the got start, it, got Jenny. It, got it. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, we need that continuity. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, it's horrible reading. Just wait until you hear about the cow. Oh, no, Jenny, no. Yeah, so for some reason, the horse melting didn't stop. (laughs) 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 Of the buyer poor Betsy was in. Wait, not... you named the cow Betsy? <laughs> yes. Okay. Just, is that in the trial or is that a Jennyism? It's a Jennyism. It okay, be Betsy. excellent. Excellent. Right. Okay, name name that cow. Okay. Can you be an angrier witch? Yeah. Or a yeah, more yeah. mystic witch? Yeah. An angry mystic witch. Okay. I curse your yolks to always be a tiny bit overcooked. <laughs> I like my yolks hard, which is, which makes some people uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, okay, next bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a flavor. That's a good flavor. <laughs>